Today on Empowering Workplaces, we are so excited to talk about AI and how to adapt to change with Jim Frawley, best-selling author of Adapting in Motion and TEDx speaker. Welcome to Empowering Workplaces, a show for everyone who wants to make work better and more fulfilling. We are your hosts, culture designer Maddie Grant and organizational psychologist Sonia Lucina. Join us in today's awesome conversation. All right, Adapting in Motion, first of all, I think that is the coolest title ever, and I'm going to ask you more about that in a minute. But first, Jim, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your uh, specific interest in AI, which is obviously a hot topic these days. Yes, very hot topic. My name is Jim Frawley. I run an organization called Bellwether. We do executive development uh, across the board, full vertical in an organization. So we do uh, everything from executive coaching to business coaching to workshops and and speaking and all of that. So um, it was born out of my time in corporate. I spent about 20 years primarily in the financial industry, doing executive communications, chief of staff roles, a lot of business management. Um, and I really earned my chops during the financial crisis, doing executive communications in the financial services industry was like wrong place, wrong time. Um, <laughs> but I learned a ton. And what I learned from the executives that did really, really well, really informs a lot of what we do today, especially as we manage change that we weren't prepared for. And I've always wanted to write a book. And when I wrote Adapting in Motion, I had plenty of time during the pandemic, so I finally sat down and wrote it, and it was uh, perfect timing then, and I feel like it's incredibly relevant now, and I feel like it will be relevant for a very, very long time as things continue to change. Yes. Yes, I love it because just the the images that it conjures up, I mean, that is the situation we're in, right? You can't just adapt once and then be done adapting, Right. And that right. was before the pandemic, before the Internet, before all of it. Um, but it's right now it's just like, how do we keep um, really being able to change sort of constantly, which is exhausting. Right. And we are definitely going to get way more into all of those topics. Um, but first, let's turn it over to Sonia, as always, because we have a really awesome data point to share and we want to hear your reaction to this. OK, I'm ready. <laughs> All right, so here it comes. Um, so we asked 300 workers around the United States, is your job currently impacted by generative AI? And what we found is actually a little mixed. So 38% said, no, my job is not impacted by generative AI. 32% said, yes, in a good way, my job is better because of generative AI. And then we had this like big drop. So 16% said yes, but I don't know yet if it's good or bad. 10% um, said, I don't know if my job is impacted. And 4% said, yes, my job is negatively impacted by generative AI. So I know we're just sharing this for the first time with you. What, you know, <laughs> people said in our survey, what's your reaction? Is that what you would expect? Is that surprising? So 64% either don't know or say yes. Um, and I, I, I guess that's not surprising at this point because we're still in the very beginning stages of it and people don't quite fully know how to adopt it. For the 38% that said no, I would say buckle up and, and get <laughs> yeah. on board because it's coming uh, if it's not there already. And, and what a lot of people aren't really making the connection on yet is that AI has been around for an incredibly long time. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, we've been using it in Google Maps. We've been using it in all of these different types of things. And the scale of change right now that it's now being, and I think probably things like the pandemic and everything working from home, we got a lot more data on what people do. And mm-hmm. we, we've seen what AI can really start to do. We're just mm-hmm. scratching the surface. I would expect significant and major changes. Uh, and some would say it's it's similar to the rise of human life on Earth. Like that's how big the changes are coming, which is super exciting, but petrifying at the same time. Um, so for those 38%, I would say start, you know, start taking a look to the 10% who don't know or the um, 16, yes, but I don't know how is you can still get in front of it a little bit as best you can. Mm-hmm. Um, and familiarity is going to make all the difference for the people in the next, you know, five years or even one year, just to make sure you're familiar mm-hmm. with AI and what's possible. And so how, like that's, I think that's a great point what would you recommend for people? Like, what are some ways you can get more familiar? Because I think I agree with you. There's some, some phenomenal things are going to happen and some scary and weird things are going to happen, like with a lot of change. And so let's say somebody's saying, listen, I get that. I've, I've been around, like I've, <laughs> I've seen the world evolve. What could I actually do to be proactive? Like, what can I do to make sure that I'm, you know, taking this to my full advantage, whether it's you know, inside my organization or just in general in how I run my like profession or my job? Yeah, the first step is to at least just become familiar with it. You know, a lot of the people talking about AI are, are coders and they're in that and it's changing that kind of work. But if you're not familiar, what, what AI is going to require is a whole new way of thinking mm-hmm. that we're not necessarily accustomed to. So how do you start learning to request things of AI to leverage your creativity, to leverage your ability to bring value? There are many free tools out there where you can practice. And so use it to make your weekly meal plan. Use it to come up with interesting ideas for your kids. Use it to do all of these types of things. Because what you're going to find is when you first test it, you're not going to be getting back the things that you thought you could get. And so if you're an entrepreneur, you could practice it if you're trying this. So you have to think in different ways to request information. It's a nice practice also to use the way you're asking AI to ask people the same type of requests because you have to be very specific and you have to give this framework and, and different way of just saying, you can't just say, give me this. You have to be very specific. I want this by this day in this way. And, and we have to be very clear in our request for it because all it does is spit back what you request. And yeah. when we understand what's then possible and we start to play with it and we start to get really familiar with it, all of a sudden we could say, wait a minute, I was doing that for my meal plan. Could I put together a business plan? Could I rewrite this? Yeah. Could I do that? And and what else is possible that we're not even thinking of yet? So that's where it's going to get really, really fun. Well, what I love about what you just said is this, the idea of playing with it for your meal plan, because I think that is how people are really getting into it, right? I know Sonia is going to say something similar, but just the, you know, there's, you can have a lot of fun with it in order to learn how it learns and, you know, learn how it thinks, quote unquote, because of course, it's not thinking in the way that is scary. <laughs> well, and it's funny, because like, we, we think about this work life blend. And like, I mean, you both can see me. So you saw the expression on my face. I was like, meal plan, my like, least favorite part of my Sunday. <laughs> like, what are we gonna eat? Because now like, I've just realized to become more efficient. I come up with a menu, I grocery shop against the menu. So then I can see what kind of proteins are eating, what kind of vegetables, what can I source, you know, organically and all of those. Oh, but I don't love it. I really don't love it. Like every, every Sunday, usually like when we're driving somewhere, I'm like on the phone, like, you know, looking that up. Um, but one of the things, and I, I think this could be a fun, maybe safe way, like where you were mentioning for people to play with it is generate different ideas. So yeah. a lot of us, like 
I always joke, I, I'm a PhD. I'm like creativity is not in my blood. Like it's just not my thing. I appreciate it. Like I love people who are creative and I wish I was. So it wasn't one of those things like, eh, I kind of stink at it and, you know, I'll just never get better. So just to get some ideas, whether it's for marketing, whether it's for storytelling, like things I read a lot, but I tend to go to the same places. Like I have my journals, I have my like authors and types of books. And I know that's really limiting. Like as a psychologist, I know like, what am I doing? But I still um, revert to that. So I do think like AI, again, I know it can be trained and we can kind of steer it in a certain way. But I think right now, like just exploration could be a really phenomenal, fun like comfortable way to do it without you're like, oh, is it a little creepy? Like, what is this doing? Like, it's it's almost like you're getting more rewards with a little bit of less risks to start. Less risk and less time. And I mean, we do the meal planning thing with our kids and we always go to the staples. It's always <laughs> yeah. the same thing and food gets boring. And, but you know what? You do the same thing with marketing because you're more familiar with one platform versus another. And mm-hmm. how do you come up with something unique? I mean, I put in one time, give me something funny to say about X and it gave me like 75 tweets and um the challenge with that of course is everybody's doing it so there's a lot of noise but (laughs) when you do that and you get the noise it gets you to think differently it changes it makes you think about different kind of connections or different ways to leverage and redo these different um different assumptions that we have and i think that's one of the big you know challenging things from a from a psychology perspective i guess is how do you shed your assumptions on what what we could normally do yeah well, and that's like, I mean, I know you're a public speaker. And so it's interesting, like for TED, I was just reading something about um, how in TED Talks, when women make a joke or funny at the beginning, it actually helps them shed a lot of stereotypes. Hmm. And it helps people perceive them differently. And I was like, oh, man, I'm not funny. <laughs> I'm just not winning here. But now. That should be teacher, right? You go. And and the great thing is the next conference I'm speaking at, I'm actually the first one. So to your point, even if other people are doing that and they find that same tweet, they're going to be the ones like, oh, no, Sonia did it. <laughs> like, <laughs> back to chat GPT. I need to find another joke. Um, but I love that because it's definitely the areas that we're not great at that it can it can help. Oh, we need to talk more. Like you're giving me so many good like life ideas. It's good, yeah. I mean, meal plans, jokes. If it's not good enough. You just hit regenerate until you find, and it will learn you. That's what's amazing, and what's what's super exciting about all of this stuff. And this is where I get like really excited. Is everyone's going to have their own AI at some point? Yeah. Everyone's going to have their own personal AI. It's going to be you know protecting your information at home. AI is a security for your uh, data. And how do you use AI to um, just basically run your house? And it's effectively like your housekeeper to say, this is your you know, routine for whatever it is that you need to do with, you know, here are 20 ideas to do with your kids or here's your routine for home. And um, your AI is almost gonna be like your phone in your pocket. It's just gonna be that much mm-hmm. more of a family member. And then also on the business side, that much more of you're going to have just a whole AI division. Every company is going to have an AI member of their team that is just going to be building and, and, and taking care of just the, the monotonous work that sometimes is fun, but, um, but the stuff that just takes a lot of time. Yeah. So I almost hate that I'm going to ask you this question, but I feel like I have to, because it's important. Um, I know when I first started my career, we were talking millennials, millennials. And I want, Oh, I was like, I can't take it anymore. No more millennials. (laughs) Um, but 
there is importance in that. And there's importance in this, like even when we were looking at technology and more of the social media apps and this gender divide of how quickly people learn. And so there are a lot of things. And I think especially like we were just saying, like automating some of the mundane tasks, the good news is it's still like, if it mentally rests you, you can still do it. But the thing is, if you have too many competing priorities, now you have something to lean on if you just can't. Yeah. Um, when it comes to generational differences, I, I, I haven't read much about this when it comes to AI or adoption. I'm using more of what I've known from before, just about technology in general. What can, for example, organizations do? So I know um, I worked with like HR technology my entire career, and I remember always telling organizations, listen, when you do trainings, just assume nobody knows anything because it's not necessarily going to be generation related, although there's probably some correlation and causation, but they're going to people be people that are just not going to catch on. And so if you don't start from the beginning and you start from the details, you'll lose a lot of people. Yeah. And so I'm thinking about, you know, both what we're saying, like personal gains and professional gains. What do you think organizations could be doing to make sure that they're really effectively equipping everyone? Because right now, I think some of the things that we were talking about, it's like maybe somebody that's more tech savvy, or maybe somebody that's just uses different applications, they're more likely to go play with chat GPT, they're more likely to do these kinds of things where someone's like, gosh, now, you know, I feel like everybody around me is talking about it, like, where do I even log into this thing? What do I really do? Um, and I'm personally interested in that, because I'm no longer like that younger generation that was like, hip and cool, like, <laughs> catapulting myself towards the, you know, other end of the <laughs> of the bell yeah. curve and thinking like, what do I, you know, like partly selfishly, but also like for organizations that do have this big mix of people, like what can we do to make sure that we really take everybody on this wave together, regardless of how savvy they are to start with maybe. There was a time and I lost a bet to do this. Um, there was a time where I was running my mouth in a cab one night late in New York city. And we saw an ad in the cab to train with Marines in Manhattan. And I was like, oh, I could do that. And I could not do that. But I want the bet. <laughs> but they said, if you do that for 30 days, we'll buy you a trip to Puerto Rico. My friends never gave me the trip to Puerto Rico, but I did it. They're at 530 in the morning. The way that they did it, though, because you had all levels of expertise, was everything happened, but you go at your pace. So mm. a person who want, had to carry a 50-pound bag up to the 10th floor and back down, one person might do it one time. Someone else might do it seven times but you still got the workout that you actually needed. So it was amazing that we all did it. I, I saw it. Everybody was at different levels and everything else. When we think about um, it, it was, it was, I consider it almost like a training program, but bespoke to you. And that's how we have to think about training is it has to be incredibly experiential. It has to be bespoke to each individual. And we're talking about, they're not, they're not different things anymore, personal capability and business promotion. They're now very much the same. And so when you put together a training plan, which is how we do it, is everything is experiential and everybody has to bring something to the table and articulating what do they want to get out of it? What's the ROI for the business? How are they articulating value for whatever program they go through? And there's an educational aspect, but it's more about changing the way that you're thinking. So I deal a lot of times we've got the older people in the audience, the Gen Xers who are sitting there say, well, I've got experience. That's enough. That's not enough anymore. Mm -hmm. Just because you have experience, unless you're bringing a different type of value, that's not enough for anybody. I'm an idea person. I come up with great ideas. Not enough anymore. You have to do ideas and you have to do the work. When we're consulting with organizations, um, and this is a harsh reality, you know, many of the conversations I'm having with executives is we're putting together business plans on what do we do with 25% of our workforce? What do we do with 50% of our workforce? Because we just don't need them. And we have the data now on people working from home who aren't really logged in, who are kind of taking their time and getting the balance that they say they want and getting a lot of family time. But the business is not moving forward. 
and they're claiming productivity and everything else. So when we think about making it bespoke to an individual and what you are looking to get, and then you articulate almost your own learning agenda within a context of a bigger yeah. training program, that's incredibly valuable because for a younger generation, Gen Z, they've got most of the tech kind of background. What they need is a, how do I create work? How do I articulate value based on this? How do I stand up for myself? How do I have influence without authority? We're doing that kind of work. For the older generations, how do you manage a Gen Z? How do you manage a virtual workforce? How do you incorporate technology? How do you, you know, when we talk about a learning agenda, what does that mean and how does that manifest and how do you promote that on your teams? And it's a very different kind of way, but everybody's in the same kind of room where they're saying, I can learn from this and I can learn from that. And they, they push the agenda on themselves. I think what's really funny, I just, this popped into my head, but from a generational perspective. So my mother, who I like to talk about on occasion, and she is a listener. Hi, mom. Um, so she sometimes, like, I have to be, you know, her help desk all the time. And she's like, she forgets how to do like copy paste, right? like the most basic things. Um, which is so frustrating for her. But then I think about like we've been talking about ChatGPT and things like that. And for her being able to ask an AI assistant to just do something for her is going to be so much easier. So she's almost like potentially going to leap over this chasm of learning how to do all the stuff in order to just be able to really just assimilate it, you know, without all the steps in between, which is so fascinating. Um, and I think to your point, there's there's ways that every generation has to adapt and you know get their arms around this, right? Completely. It's uh, well, the context changes for each individual mm-hmm. and, and what they need. I mean, if my parents are using ChatGPT, they have all the time in the world to say, "Why isn't this working?" and let me play with it because mm-hmm. they're retired and they can do yeah. whatever works. Um, but they're incredibly frustrated with technology. So to have someone who could package it and they say, oh, this is my new best friend. This can do whatever it is that uh, I don't have to call Jim or, or one of my siblings every time something goes wrong. So it's incredibly helpful, but they're able to take the time and they become familiar with it. And all of a sudden they can see the application for whatever it is that they need mm-hmm. at home or maybe in their workplace or whatever it is. Um, and again, we're just at the beginning. So this will eventually evolve into to significantly bigger opportunities. So in terms of um, adapting to change, you know, we talked about training. Is that really the key or because I I would think and in my work um, around, you know, culture, it's there's a lot of those sort of softer skills. And I hate that phrase, but, you know, we all use it. But some of these more human traits that that need to be really valued and we're not really valuing them yet. But things like just curiosity and you know, the ability to play with these tools, that's usually companies are sort of risk averse and they don't want normally to let their workforce just, you know, let them loose on all these different tools, right? But in this case, if you don't, there's no way that you can stay on top of it, even in order to train at least a percentage of work of your workforce that you want to train, right? So you right. sort of have to let everybody train themselves in a way. <laughs> Right. Like, how do you how do you see that in some of the work that you're doing? A hundred percent. This this is the the training and focus that we do is heavily focused on personal accountability because you're lying in the bed that you make. If you don't get familiar with AI, you will be left behind. And when they when I'm working at it with a team or an organization and they're saying we're looking to keep only 25 percent of our people, if you don't know AI, you're not in the top 25 percent of people. 
If you have no familiarity with AI, you are not in, you're not included. No matter how good you are, you're just not included because we need someone who could do the work of seven people in one person and do that. If we want to promote a culture of curiosity and, and these softer skills, which is very important, I think, um, culture becomes whatever we prioritize. Right. And so what I like to, and what I've done, there was this great, um, he ran a big fund and he had a small team, maybe 30 people. He wanted to change everybody's desire to be learners. And so all we did was every meeting starts with, what did you learn today? And everybody knows they're coming to the meeting with something. And all of a sudden, two weeks, they were coming with, you know what, I learned this, but then also I think it could lead to this. And it started becoming bigger curiosity question. Um, as we look to you know, adapt to change, adapt is reactive. And mm -hmm. what I would say we have to prepare for it before it comes when we don't know what it is. And so how are you as an individual taking accountability to say, I'm prepared for whatever comes my way to say, you know, from a physical perspective, yes, I'm eating right. I'm thinking right. I'm sleeping right. I'm doing whatever. From a, a mental standpoint, what value do you place on yourself and the self-love and the self-care stuff that you do? And what do you believe? Because this is questioning our value as human beings. From a social perspective, who are your social people? Who are <laughs> Who's your support system? Um, who are the new people you're meeting to challenge your belief system and give you new perspectives? What are the micro interactions you're having to, to meet new people and remember that you're part of something bigger and you create this kind of network that you have? And the physical, mental, social preparation is what's key for an individual to take that accountability to help you become more curious, to help you take ownership of whatever gets thrown, new AI, new AI programs or new market changes or whatever is going to hit the office you'll have things in place where you could just absorb it in the snowball as you move forward, but you're lying in the bed that you make. So it, I love what you're saying, but part of me is wondering, it's, it seems different when you're talking about all these things. And then you're also talking about the executives who are like, we need to cut 25% of our workforce. It almost feels like they're not doing that, what you just said, right? Because they're still thinking in that traditional way that we need, you know, optimum productivity and, you know, we're going to go spy on our people <laughs> working mm -hmm. remotely because we don't trust that they're doing any work, et cetera, right? Like, yep. how do you kind of, I mean, knowing that you work with a lot of executives, how do you balance some of these ideas and with their kind of traditional, like, desires, <laughs> So traditional is the challenging question that I would mm -hmm. say there. And when we're working with executives is, and these are just exercises we're going through, but this is just a full exercise on, let's shed the assumptions. Can we get the same productivity done with 25% of the people? If the answer is yes, generally the answer is no initially, right? And they say, no, we can't. Well, what, what needs to change in order to make that happen? And so they would say, well, we would probably need more of this type of person, more of that type of person. And the more we talk about it, say, well, we don't actually need to do that work. We don't actually need to do that work. We don't need to do that work. And then nobody's ripping the Band-Aid on 75% of their people yet. But maybe we need 75% less executives. <laughs> perhaps, you know, there is there is a power to the people. You know, you see the thing go back and forth. But the first question I ask is, why why do you hire people? Right. This is a full review of, of people strategy. What are your people doing? Are they supposed to be sitting at a desk for 40 hours a week or 60 hours a week? Or how do you quantify value in different types of ways? And how do you get them to articulate the value? If I took 25% of my people, if I have a, a 
business of like 10,000 employees. I want to get it down 2,500. I'll say, I'll give all 2,500 of you a million dollars to operate a, a mini business. How much more productive would that be where they become these mini CEOs and you're driving this entrepreneurship and say, this is your budget, come back and make it worth 1.5 million or 2 million or something like that. It's a very different business model based on all the yeah. traditional ways that we've done it. Now, that's going to be very uncomfortable and bumpy for that bottom 75% because we're not teaching them how to think in that type of way. And so we're not ripping the Band-Aid yet, but we're putting in these programs to get them to say, you know what, you've got ownership of this. What does accountability really mean? What does mm -hmm. empowerment really mean? Right? We say we want our people to be empowered, but then we're crying <laughs> on them working from home. It doesn't add up. Right. Uh, yeah, so how exactly. Do you, how does this manifest in things like trust and say, you know, how do we elevate expectations? That includes holding people accountable to say, I expect this from you and now I'm going to hold you accountable for not hitting it. And how do we push that all the way down in the organization? And each organization is different. The larger the organizations, the more bureaucratic. This is much more difficult to pull mm -hmm. off. But most yeah. organizations are pretty small. Most organizations are not these big behemoth Wall Street banks and law firms and everything else. Yeah. So it's a little more realistic to say we can we can test some of these behaviors, come back, what can we measure from a value perspective and then come back and say, you know what, this is starting to work or maybe it's not, what do we need to change? Um, but when it's, it's always working, it's always working with me. So that's. <laughs> are you helping, and Sonia, I'll let you jump in in a second, but are, are you helping these executives learn to trust their people? Because I feel like that's really, really key to making this work, right? Is they have to release some control in order to get some of that accountability. Because if they're directing everything and it's not working like they want, then you know what I mean? You, ha you have to be able to let your workforce actually do the things that they want to yes, do. hundred percent. And, and so mm -hmm. when we're working with executives, what we do is we try to shed their assumptions. And there are great books on how to ask really good questions. I'm not big on listening skills and promoting listening skills. I, I think that's been overdone, but I am big on promoting how do you ask a really good question? And executives who can ask really good questions are the ones who are incredibly successful in empowering their people. And the way I define a question, most people don't know how to define a question is, it's a request for information where you legitimately do not know the answer. And so most of the work I do with executives is how do we change your questions to shed the assumption and judgment that comes with your question statements rather than just questions so that people are then able to bring a different type of work, psychological safety. It's a big promotion of psychological safety. It's big yeah. about bringing your perspectives and, and welcoming their perspectives and doing all of that type of work. So um, there is a lot of work in terms of shedding assumptions in the way that things used to be done. This is the way we always do it. Um, mm -hmm. How quickly are you looking for a return on this? Speed is always important. Um, but there's a bit of a long game as well. And so how do we balance that? And that context really depends on the, the company and the executive and, and what their expectations are and, and what they're looking to accomplish. Well, it'll be interesting to see how that changes too, because we mentioned you know generations and who's in leadership roles today. Um, and I think I often like give myself as an example too. I'm not that old, but I started working a while ago and I still like even though I'm a huge advocate for empowerment, for freedom, autonomy, trust, like I still find myself even in my behavior, like if I'm stepping out during the day, 
like, oh, like, am I doing it on work hours? Like work, well, like it does, like nobody is watching over me. I know my leader is not. But when I started to work, like I showed up to the office in a turtleneck and a suit for a while. Like I don't do that anymore. <laughs> but there's something that's like ingrained in me around the way that I used to think. And again, I'm like kind of in like the middle of the, the generational. And um, it was interesting what you were saying, Jen, like about asking questions they don't really know answers to. And I, I wrote that down because I think it's so important. And then in my mind, I was like, oh goodness, like I'm thinking of somebody, I think you can still ask it, but maybe some of the top executives being like, oh, I would never dare somebody think I don't know an answer to something. Like, of course I do. And I think that's changing, right? But again, maybe not as quick, like, oh, vulnerability and being open and really wanting more information. But it's like, well, wait a minute, is somebody expecting me as a top executive to know everything? And if they are, why am I asking somebody something I really don't know? Um, but I think there's tremendous value in that. So I do think that there, when you've been in the workforce for a, while, for a while, there are just some things that are innately in us. And it doesn't make anybody a bad person. It's just that recognition that if work was done a certain way for a while, it's going to take some of that to change, but having that like actual awareness of working on it makes a world of difference. But then on the flip side, not beating yourself up if you're like, ah, like, why am I thinking about this way? Like still like, no, 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 like let it, it'll pass. It takes some time. Yeah. It took, I remember leaving corporate when I launched my business, it was about a year and a half in where I just said, I need to stop and just unlearn all of the things I learned in finance, right? We couldn't say things to the media in certain ways because we were a regulated industry and, you know, all, but I can say whatever the hell I want now. It's kind yeah. of nice. Um, but there is a lot of talk that we do on the misjudgment we have on what some of these words mean, like vulnerability, empathy, humility, mm -hmm. resilience. Mm -hmm. Many people misinterpret what they mean. The amount of executives yeah. I talk to about not taking credit mm -hmm. for their work because they wanted to be seen as humble. See, that's a complete misinterpretation of the term. <laughs> um, empathy, right? The empathy thing at work has gone a little too far, I think, where mm -hmm. people are losing sight of the bigger picture and pushing the business forward. And so that's kind of, you know, where's the check on on empathy and fully understanding empathy? And what is what is vulnerability? It's not necessarily, you know, sharing your problems over the weekend, but recognizing that you may not know the answer to something. And that's OK. That's why you have your team and the good leaders, the really good leaders that we know are the ones who are comfortable in their own skin with all of these words, able to ask these types of questions and then lead the people who should have those those types of answers. Yeah. So it looks like we're coming up against time, which always happens. Um, so Jim, can you leave us our, leave our listeners with like a final takeaway, um, particularly from the individual standpoint? We talked a lot about um, what companies can do, but I think, um, you know, just what's your final thought on what an individual person, a worker can do to get ready? I would say as a final thought, change is just a distraction. Too often we focus on the change, we focus externally on the change, but macro change requires a focus on the micro individual. And you are the one person responding to change. You're responsible to respond to change and prepare for change in any kind of way that you can respond. So from a physical standpoint, a mental standpoint, and a social standpoint, those are the decisions that you can make and you can take action now where it's not so focused on the change, but more about getting yourself in that position to be able to respond to whatever whatever change hits you. I love that. Sonia, do you have a, yeah. a final thought? No, I'll leave it with Jim's thought. He's <laughs> he's the expert here. <laughs> Perfect. 
Good, good. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Um, this is this is a great conversation. Uh, so much more to talk about and to get ready for and to experience in our change. Uh, but yes, love having you on. And uh, thank you to our listeners. We'll be back at the next episode. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jim. Thank you. In addition to being the Empowering Workplaces host, I'm also the president of Question Pro Workforce, and I wanted to tell you a bit more about it because it so brilliantly aligns with our concept of empowerment. At Question Pro Workforce, we help organizations across the world better connect with their employees. We do this through continuous listening survey technology, as well as sharing our deep knowledge and expertise to help our clients know what questions to ask to most deeply connect with their workforce and take impactful action on data and insights they collect. Learn how Question Pro Workforce can be a great partner on your path to creating a really outstanding employee listening strategy and a remarkable organizational culture at questionpro.com backslash workforce.